0: Well, thank you, Huey. Glad to be here, to see quite a few familiar faces. It's good, it makes me feel a little bit more at ease. I wanted to speak this morning, both sessions, on a primer on God unique. It's a study that was sparked by the movement on open theism that is currently doing quite a bit of damage in churches and in the Evangelical Theological Society, which this week on Wednesday will be voting in connection with two men whether their teaching has violated the statement of faith of ETS. I'll be there for that meeting. It'll be interesting to see what is said. But in hearing about the debate and the discussion on open theism, my thoughts turned almost immediately to Isaiah 40 through 48. And I've looked at this over the last few months. So if you'd turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 when I was younger than I am now we used to sing our God is an awesome God who reigns in heaven above in wisdom, power and love our God is an awesome God or perhaps the one that we sang very lustily how big is God how big and wide his vast domain to begin to tell these lips can only start he's big enough to rule the mighty universe yet small enough to reign within my heart and I'm sure other songs of a similar nature tumble through your mind right now with similar vocabulary and emphasis and I think it's good to remind ourselves of the sovereignty of God In these days of geopolitical turmoil in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world. In fact, I'm not sure there is a continent that is not affected somewhere by trouble. But the prophet Isaiah shows very clearly God's sovereignty and God's transcendence and God's immanence. His transcendence would be his exalted and majestic separation from his creation and his creatures. He's not part of the creation. He's above it, outside of it, but involved in it. That would be his imminence. His personal presence and working in this world fully taking into account human activity and experience and decision making. He's omnipotent and omniscient. He's all powerful, he's all knowing and We ought also to use an additional word that the older theologies used and we don't use it too much today but he's omnisapient all wise. And so for me God's sovereignty simply means an absolute independence and freedom to do as he pleases and his absolute control over all the actions of his creatures so that nothing thoughts his will or acts outside the bounds of his will. I see it not so much as an attribute, but as the sum of the attributes of greatness. When you speak about a God who is self-existent, eternal, immutable, immense, omniscient, omnipotent, omnisapient, and infinite, you've expressed sovereignty. There is no other conclusion. I want to take you, therefore, into this chapter, chapter forty. And the second half. What I've got is a two part sermon. The first part is here, the second part is next session, okay? So we're going to look at two literary strategies in proclaiming God that theologically blocks any attempt to redefine and curtail his power. Two literary strategies that Isaiah used in proclaiming God that theologically block any attempt to redefine his power and his knowledge. One thing is very clear. As Isaiah unremittingly attacks pagan ways, he, he brings to your attention that Yahweh, Jehovah, is the Lord of history. The one who is able with consummate ease to link the past, present and the future together he really does know it all and he really does have his own timetable there's an aloneness and a solitariness to God so we come to this chapter and I've called it key questions that introduce the reader to the character and being of the Lord God Key questions that introduce the reader to the character and being of the Lord God. When you come to chapter 40, out of chapter 39, you actually, if I may use this as an illustration, I thought about it when I played pinball the other day on my laptop. Just saw it there and said, You know, let me try this. I've never done this scored two million or something. (laughs) But you know, one of the things on that pinball is a wormhole. Shoot in, come out some other part of the universe in some other time. When you step from 39 to 40, you've just shot through a wormhole. Because you've bounced, that's probably not the word, you've been catapulted from the messengers of Babylon at the time of Hezekiah to a period of time much later when the nation is ready to return from the exile. So here we are at a time in the future to Isaiah. And we we'll left have to begin with what I've called instructive rhetorical interrogations. There are key questions here. But it starts with instructive rhetorical interrogation. You know as well as I do that rhetorical questions are a well-known communication device in all languages, practically in every age because they have the ability to take the mind of the reader to cap the listener, to capture his attention and force him to become a co-expressor of the conclusions of the speaker. You've heard what I said.
1: There's the only obvious
0: conclusion to draw and it's framed in the form of a question. Forced to look at the facts and immediately draw a conclusion. There are four sets of rhetorical questions here. If you look at verses 12 through 14, if you remember when the reading was done. Verse 18, verse 21 and verse 25. Those are the rhetorical questions, but they lead up to one accusatory question that's not rhetorical in verse 27 and one final rhetorical question. So the chapter is actually framed by a series of questions. It's time to console the people. Assyrian power has dominated the Fertile Crescent for a long time. Babylon is on the rise, but ultimately come west to destroy Israel. Israel She needs comfort. And so the message is delivered to comfort the people and bring their attention to what God is going to be doing. You will notice in verse 9 and 10 three uses of the word behold. I need to just look at this quickly before writing into the questions if you read in the NASB at the end of verse 9, it will say, Here is your God. It's actually the word behold. Behold your God. It's a cry of identification. A call of identification. Here he is. And they just heard about what their God was going to be doing, clearing the way for them, etc. So here's the identity. Look, here's your God. And it's almost as though there would be an echo in response. Who is he again? What is he doing? And so a description follows. Behold, now listen. Your Lord will be coming with might and with rulership. And then another call. Behold, let me indicate to you what the results of that will be. Here's your God. Listen, this is what your God's going to be doing. Wait a second, do you realize I want to indicate who is with him? His reward. Most probably the captives from Babylon being brought back. Then the rhetorical questions arise in verse 12. This is 12 through 17 I would call our God is unrivaled in power and knowledge. Our God is unrivaled in power and knowledge. It's a literary masterpiece. Did you catch it? The weight of the waters scooped up in the palm of his hand. Water's heavy. Five gallon bucket of water takes an effort. And here's one who just takes the waters of the ocean and scoops them up gently in the palm of his hand. Or, deftly, with a flick of the fingers, he stretches out the heavens. He measures them with the span of his hand, as it were. But the graphic picture continues. He's weighed the dust of the earth in a scale. That's just exactly what he's needed. In fact he does the same with the mountains and the hills. Stop and think at least for my wife and I when we hear about mountain ranges we automatically automatically think of Europe. Swiss Alps the other mountain ranges you can think of some here they portray strength solidity substance and God simply measures them, weighs them they're not a problem to him at all I think you can look at it from this perspective because the use of the words measure and balance and scale suggests a craftsman at work A jeweler, perhaps. You ever seen a a jeweler at work at his bench? With precision, working? This is the picture here, I think. A craftsman making a tiny universe in exact detail. And then with barely a pause, you slide over into knowledge and the discussion becomes that about who gave him knowledge and understanding there's a play upon concept here as well for it said he is marked off the heavens by the span and then the same word is used in the question who has marked off the spirit of the Lord a little bit of semantic spread in the word It means who has directed, who has measured, who has regulated the Spirit of God. Kylan Delich expresses this in in this way, and it's very good. Who furnished the Spirit with a standard according to which all would be done? When you think about the questions that are asked in 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17, that set of verses, when you have a piling up of words here, to create and to handle the full extent and depth of that creation. And when you have an obvious emphasis made on self-wisdom, it actually makes it impossible for anybody else to stand up. It doesn't matter what his stature or his wisdom or his authority may be, but there's nobody that can listen to these questions and stand up and say, I can, I have. I can do that. I can have that knowledge there is no rival See the the solitariness of God that is expressed in the scriptures and particularly in these eight chapters of Isaiah makes it clear that there is absolutely no rival to God whatever other deities the other nations may have they are non-entities they don't feature, there is no rivalry There's no competition from it all. There would be an audacity. It would be arrogance. It would be presumption to assume that you could advise the Lord God of hosts. The questions drive that point home. With whom has he conferred? With whom has he consulted concerning his plans for Israel, for the nations, for the affairs of the world and the future? It's a word that is used of one man giving counsel to another, to be sure. In fact, it's used of, in Isaiah 25, you can turn there some other time. In Isaiah 25, in verse 1, Of God having worked wonders and plans in advance, and these plans occur afterwards with perfect faithfulness, and praise is rendered to the Lord because of his planning and his working. Listen, my, my brethren. You cannot conceive of God, even for momentarily, as, as aimlessly, lazily, on a whim, deciding what to do and not to do. It's not goalless less action. When you're talking about consulting and understanding and the path of justice and knowledge and being informed of the way of understanding and clearly recognizing this belongs to God alone you have to define God's activities in terms of telos goal he acts teleologically that removes all unpredictability from the equation concerning the future he's the counselor he's the planner in fact he knows all the plans of man he knows what one devises against another and when their plans conflict against God's, they are worthy of shame but they are incorporated by God into his plan this is his uniqueness absolute uniqueness no one has taught him at all and it is unthinkable To ask the question, who taught God the path of justice? Who taught God in such a way that he amassed knowledge? It's unthinkable. Because it implies, Well, I'll ask you a semi-rhetorical question. What does the statement he teaches you imply? That person teaches that person. A teaches B. It means that A knows more than B. And A informs B, so B comes up to where A is. And maybe goes beyond. But some, someone has no knowledge. It is unthinkable to put God on the level of a student that needs to have his knowledge expanded by what somebody else knows be ridiculous. In fact, just a little bit of reflection will tell you that anybody standing up and suggesting that he could advise God has himself as a created being. He's had to be taught all that he knows. So how can somebody who knows nothing and has to grow in it possibly turn around and suggest in an arrogant way God you need my input God does not need the warning that you and I need lean not unto your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll keep you he'll make your path straight he doesn't need the warning don't lean on your own understanding his self-knowledge is perfect In fact, this is one little principle I'd like to leave with you. Divine self-wisdom is not defective. Okay? But man's is. And thus, man needs God's wisdom by which to live his life. I need direction and regulation and input from God himself. It's not the other way around. His self-wisdom is not defective, but perfect. He's the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who stands alone, who plans alone, who acts alone. The reason why making this point about being taught and God's will being done according to his own plans alone is because open theism suggests That somehow God and me, acting in consort, can respond to the future. But given the supremacy of God, and given the sinful and limited perspective we bring to the table, it would be indeed bizarre for us to expect God to arrive at some consensus with us, and that our input is essential. That somehow without this we would not have ownership of the future. Friends, it is God's will be done, not God's will be formed, with my help. Our God is unrivaled in power and knowledge, but second, in this instructive interrogation, our God is unequaled in being and form. Now God is unequaled in being and form. This is 18 through 20. He's made the point in the preceding verse. The nations are as nothing before God regarded as less than nothing and meaningless. And then asks the question, to whom then will you liken God? It's a good question. It stresses what I've been emphasizing, and I'm sure you noticed the use of the word several times, the solitariness of Yahweh. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's the Holy One. And the question now needs to be asked, to whom will you liken El? Interesting use of the title that the ancient Near Eastern nations used for their chief deity. To whom will you liken El? In other words, our God is the chief. In fact, there is no other. He's number one. He's all there is. He's the real L you don't have any and the irony of idolatry seeps out as you read on or what likeness will you compare with him and then you will remember in the reading the the irony maybe the sarcasm let's say of the idol being cast by a craftsman being carefully calculated it's superb Irony. A craftsman had worked to make a God. But what did I say earlier was suggested, or at least possibly was the background or the picture in the mind of the writer, using the words of marking off the heavens, calculating, weighing in the scales. If you catch the contrast in the concept, the point goes home. A craftsman had worked to make a God. But it was God who is the craftsman making the world. It's an incredible, magnificent contrast in the irony concerning idolatry. In fact, they had to prepare their God in such a way that He doesn't totter. Make sure that this thing you sculpt stands and doesn't fall over. Can't have a representative of God that is unstable. And in fact, if necessary, you better select a tree made of wood that doesn't rot because you cannot have something of your God on the mantelpiece that starts to decay. It's superb irony, it's an incredibly penetrating jab. And idolatry—it's biting sarcasm, which occurs regularly in these eight chapters. Who could be equal to one that needs no help or direction? And the answer: no one. Absolutely, no one. He holds the monopoly. To decide what to leave out and what to include. To whom would you liken God? It's a penetrating question that should stun the mind of the Israelite who battled constantly with idolatry. God is unequaled in being and form. In fact, the nations themselves cannot even step forward collectively to put forward their collective knowledge as though this would be vast enough Because they do not have enough. With all the wisdom they had, With all the learning. In fact, you can still make the statement today with all the learning that the world has today. Which is incredible. As most of you know. In fact, I was reading something recently that suggested that the mass of knowledge every seven years doubles. I don't know exactly to what extent the geometric progression will be allowed to run. But I I do understand that knowledge doubles. And I do understand that what I did in high school, when I look at what kids do in high school now, there's no comparison. How did those kids get into their heads all that they have to do? When I had a hot enough job getting the little that we had in our high school into my head. There is a mass of knowledge in the world but all the knowledge that man has makes no contribution to what god is and does in fact just drop your eye back to verse 15 did you did you catch the picture the nations are like a drop from a bucket Regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. This is again a literary masterpiece. When you've poured the water out of a bucket, you always have a few drops inside, right? What do you do with them? Wipe them out. Wipe them off. They they don't need to be there with the rest or the, you waste something fine on scales, there's a speck left. What do you do with it? Swish. It doesn't become part of what had been weighed. And God pushes this aside. He is unrivaled in power and knowledge. he's unequaled in being and form. But now come with me to the next questions in verse 21 the Craftsman is at work making his universe but men are craftsmen making their God Verses 21 through 24 I would call our God is unequaled In stature and existence. Our God is unequaled in stature and existence. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Time to move the thought further along. The knowledge of God was to be expected of the Israelites. There's been this concise piece on idolatry. There's going to be an assertion of the facts that should have been acknowledged from the very beginning. It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, etc. Knowledge of God was to be expected of the Israelites. That's why the question is worth asking. They should have been able to reply, Yes, we do know. We do know certain things because of the revelation we have and the experience of our history of God at work they knew him well from their scriptures, they knew him well from their historical events they knew him well from the prophets and the prophecies delivered by those messengers of God they should have been able to tell from the very beginning God has been involved all is his handiwork it reminds me of Psalm 19 verse 1 The heavens are telling the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. It reminds of Psalm 8 verse 3. When I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers and that word word means the embroidery work. When I look at the embroidery skill of God I should know that that is indeed the Lord that has been involved. But look at verse 22 here who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It's that image again of that little flick of the fingers. In fact, I forgot again. I meant to ask my wife to give me her fan. You know, ladies, my wife collects spoons, but she also has a little collection of fans. Not that many. I should have asked her for one because I would have had to practice how to use it, but You've seen the ladies do it. (laughs) And it's open. with such ease. That's the picture right here. Like flicking open a fan. He laid out the universe. That's intended to convey incredible power and knowledge. With a movement of his hand just like that. He stretched it out to whatever extent it's supposed to go. And you and I know instantly when we read these words I do not know the distance of east from west, north from south. I do not know where the boundaries of the universe are if it is a bounded universe. I know this. I cannot with my mind conceive of just going And going, and going, even with a wormhole to shoot through. There's something infinite here, but it's my God who made it. Kings and presidents and governors come and go. You get that? This one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who puts it up like a tent. In fact, it's, if if I'm, if I'm Not mistaken, it talks about a piece of gauze, as it were, just opened up. It's He who, the Creator, it's He that reduces rulers to nothing. It's He who makes the judges of the world meaningless. They come and they go, they rise and they fall. And God knows that fully. It's an involvement of the Yahweh in world affairs that is very much in evidence in these verses. He's not locked up in the universe as, a pantheism, as pantheism would have. He's, he's not outside, locked outside of his universe having set it in motion and moved off as deism would have. The God of the Bible is directly involved in the affairs of his world as the sole planner, the sole revealer, the sole creator, the sole sustainer. And that's our God. So he asks the question again in verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? Verse 25 through 26. Now we've gone through three things. Unrivaled in power and knowledge. Unequal in being and form. There's absolutely no one like our God. And unequal in stature and existence. He is indeed the infinite, immense God. He used the word immensity in dealing with God as well. And now you come back to our God is unrivaled in power and knowledge. It becomes a repeat of what had been there before. To whom then would you like in me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Unrivaled in power and knowledge and involvement. Verse 25 points to what I've called for want of better heading the intergalactic immensity of Yahweh look up see the stars it closes off the preceding section and ushers in the new with a reminder of God in the heavens think of Abraham sure that would come to the mind of the Jew listening to this thinking of Abraham when God asked him to look at the stars and count them if he could That would be the number of his descendants. How many stars are there? I'm waiting for you The figure to go through your mind. The zeros are rolling. Even with all the modern technology, there's still an awful lot out there. And so estimates have been made of millions, billions, Trillions of stars. We say, we understand Abraham. If God promised you descendants like the stars, that means there's no number. In fact, the parallel illustration that God used of Abraham was what? As the sand of the sea. Sand of the seashore. Unnumbered. But what do we know about God and the stars? He counts them. He knows their number. I have no idea what the largest number is that men can put down mathematically. But God's not troubled by big numbers. In fact, He doesn't just number the stars. What does He also do? He names them. Knows them all by name. Psalm 147 and verse 4 this is the immensity of our God are you, are you getting the point this morning that I want you to get is the God we worship the God we serve the God who called us the God who put us in the place where we are is the God who has no rival and rules over everything knows its past is aware of its present And knows its future. Completely. And fully. To the extent that every decision I make is incorporated easily in the plan of God. He's greater than the heavens. Now this is interesting because the heavenly bodies or the stars were deities to the ancient Near Eastern nations. And so, an ancient Near Eastern person outside of Israel hearing these words, and they did hear these words from time to time. It's amazing how portions of the scriptures were repeated in other parts of the Fertile Crescent. They, they knew what Israel was teaching from time to time. They would hear this. The one who leads them forth, their host by number, calls them all by name because of the greatness of his power. They would immediately see a put down of their own deity because they, they had these astral deities. In fact, they had developed already a horoscope approach, where this would be astrological, that the movement of the stars, the deities, would somehow impact the fate of the mortals. Not at all. They are created objects, providentially sustained in their course by the Lord's power. They're inanimate. He marshals them like a retinue, Not one of them is missing. He gets them all together. It's his parade. This is the stars. He controls them. He makes them. They are not gods. What has happened, if you stop to reflect on these questions, is that folks had dragged God down to their level and we're trying to look at him through their own eyes making him in their own image that's why the questions have been asked the way they've been asked i'm going to give you a little formula that i think summarizes this before we move to the final question divine demotion plus human elevation equals robbing God of His glory. Divine demotion and human elevation equals robbing God of His glory. But the correct formula is divine elevation plus human demotion Equals reminder of your creatureliness and your limitations and of his greatness and unlimitedness. Sorry, I got a longer answer there. Divine elevation plus human demotion equals a reminder. I'm a creature with limitations. He has greatness with no limitations. The contrast is too vast. Don't humanize the Lord God. He stands out there transcendent and immanent. Then you come after these rhetorical interrogations. And As a matter of fact, we could spend about another 15 minutes on those questions. There's a lot more about the character of God that can be inferred and, and drawn out of the passage. But you come to verse 27 and I've called it the single question indictment. The single question indictment. Four rhetorical questions followed with some of their own answers or the teaching from them. and They explode with this one question. Why do you say my way, God doesn't know? It's a baseless accusation against God. He's unaware. So verse 27 abruptly breaks in. It's valid interrogation. So why do you draw this conclusion? Given who he is and what he is, why do you make such an accusation that God doesn't see, doesn't know, has forgotten us that somehow that which is due to us by virtue of where we are in the plan of God is escaping the notice of that God. That's divine demotion taking place on the part of some. It's a great question that's delivered, and what it, what they are going to think about is that the truth of His total sovereignty and His incomparability dismisses the complaint that God has abandoned His people. Stop the doubting and the questioning. Believe that God can accomplish deliverance. He's not forgotten. Verse 28 starts to answer the question for them with a rhetorical question. Do you not know, have you not heard, that our God is an everlasting God? He's made the ends of the earth. I mean, listen, that's to make you remember everything that's in the chapter beforehand. Since he made everything, since he is alone in the making of it, since it's his plan alone, And since he controls all things and knows all the history of the world, then don't ever conclude that that everlasting, infinite, creating God has forgotten his purpose concerning you, speaking to the nation. In fact, there's a well-founded defense of the Lord that he's delivered in verses 28 through 31, these closing words, He upholds. He strengthens. I know that these verses are often mentioned devotionally and that's fine. But in the historical context in which they stand, the the listener at Isaiah's time would see these words as applying to the international turmoil of his own day. When God's hand upon the history of the nation was not that obvious. You remember who was the main nation of the fertile crescent at the time that Isaiah was prophesying? It was the nation of Assyria. Do you know anything about Assyria? Or Assyrian policy or Assyrian Assyrian brutality? It was incredible. This was not a nice next door neighbor that you shared tools with across the back fence these were bad guys they were worse than the worst gang of the current age these were bad dudes who had no time for anybody it was not unusual to pile skulls outside the gate of the cities that had been conquered it was not unusual to skin prisoners alive and take the skin and cover furniture with it this was their cruelty brutal for several hundred years and they needed to hear these words in the midst of all this that you don't understand when questions surge when doubts arise remember that there is one whose understanding is so inscrutable but he knows exactly what's going on he has never abandoned his people He'll give strength to the weary and increase their power. He'll, he'll uphold all the people and he uses the well-known pictures of young men in all their vigor still reach a point where they can't con- continue. Even the best of the Navy SEALs will finally reach a point of exhaustion. But God strengthens you in the midst of these times. And the metaphor carries the message. Our God He's an upholding, sustaining God. So show confidence in God and God alone. In fact, I think this also applies to those of the Babylonian captivity. They would read these words or they'd hear them being read by the priests and their, their minds would rejoice. God did indeed sustain us by his strength to bring us across from Babylon back into the promised land. Incomparable, unrivaled, unequaled in power and knowledge, being and form, stature and existence He nullifies the councils of the nations He frustrates their plans He continues to do His own will in all things Single question, indictment comes home When you've considered all that you can about the very being of God Himself. The question comes, so why would you ever suggest that God does not know your life? He doesn't abandon His people in. In fact, even when it looks as though God's handiwork is not there. Believe that it is. Would you bow bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, there is powerful attestation in your word of your attributes of greatness and of your immanence, your being involved in national affairs and even individual affairs. We don't confess or profess to understand exactly how all this fits together but one thing we do know that you stand alone as the God of the universe and that we may call you our Lord. Pray, Father, that you'd strengthen us in the inner man with these truths of your majesty and your personal presence, action, and that indeed we may be greatly encouraged to know that your hand has not been lifted from the earth In his name we pray amen